Let's, uh, let's bow in prayer. And Father, we um, express to you our, our thanks for this uh, incredible, uh, mysterious uh, gift of love. Uh, we're grateful, Lord, that uh, while we were yet sinners, um, Jesus died for us and rose again. And we're grateful we can, we can meet um, in the name of Jesus and worship you. And may we continue, Father, in that mindset, in that heart of worshiping you in spirit and in truth as we open up your word and then as we partake together of the Lord's table. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, happy Apple Blossom uh, weekend to all of you here in the Winchester, uh, Ferdick County area. Um, crazy crazy times, but I uh, hope you're wearing uh, some pink or green or something like that. That's what we do here on Apple Blossom Weekend, so I um, uh, hope you've had a great weekend. Beautiful day on Saturday for a parade. Missed it, but that's, uh, that's the way it goes. Do you ever um, uh, wake up one morning and wonder what in the world is going on? You know, we went to sleep one night and awoke the next morning to, um, to all this craziness that's going on. Um, seven and a half billion people around the world uh, being, being focused upon this uh, pandemic and all the concerns and cares uh, inflicting the death of what is it they're saying, 240,000 people around the world as, as up to this point. And yet, this world ignores the, um, the spiritual virus, the virus of sin that will actually inflict death on every one of the seven and a half billion people in this world. The spiritual virus of sin and death. Um, this morning or afternoon or evening, wherever you're, whenever you're watching this, I want us to uh, not lose sight of, of the forest for the trees. I want us to take a, a kind of a giant step backwards and get, a, get an understanding again of the forest of the book of Romans as we have been uh, kind of putting emphasis on the trees. And I want us to begin this morning with a verse in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now you look at that verse, the one man that is referred to is, of course, Adam, back in Genesis. Um, Genesis chapter 3, uh, Adam took of that fruit, the fruit that God had said, you can eat of all the fruit of the trees in the garden, but of the one tree you can't eat of that fruit, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam took of the fruit, as through one man, sin entered the world, and true to his word, God said, death will come. Death means to be separated from, uh, separated from uh, uh, the life of God, separated from fellowship with him, separated from fellowship with one another, separation, alienation. In the day of eat, it, of eat of it, you will surely die. 
well, death spread then, he said, to all men because all sinned. Adam became that representative head of all humanity. And death was passed down throughout all humanity because in Adam we all sinned. The virus of sin has infected us all, just like it did with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Sin has separated us from God. And so there's this chasm that exists, a chasm, a great chasm of sin and death between a holy God and a sinful man. The chasm of sin that leads to death. The wages of sin is death, Paul will say in Romans chapter 6. Paul describes the, the plight of sinful man um, in various ways, but in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he said this. Remember this verse? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Adam sinned as a representative head of all humanity. Sin is passed on to all humanity because in Adam all sinned. The great chasm now separates us from a holy God. Everybody born into this world is separated from a holy God. But the plight of man is maybe worse than even that because as we just read here, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's, that's a holy God's response, a, a, a natural, um, uh, honest response. It's, it's, a, it's a reasonable response of a holy God. The wrath of God, that's his anger, that's his, his displeasure. A holy God is displeased with sin. Now, remember, as we looked at that verse uh, weeks ago, Paul speaks of the wrath of God being revealed, being manifested in the present tense. And uh, please understand this. When this concept of God's wrath and anger against sin is used in, in the New Testament, I think it predominantly has a, a present tense as it is in this passage in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It's a present manifestation. We oftentimes think of the wrath of God as something that is yet to come, something in, in, um, in eternity, like hell. That's when God's wrath is going to be poured out. But Paul speaks of the present manifestation of wrath. And if you do that study in the New Testament of that word wrath or the anger of God, and you check it out, it predominantly speaks of God's present manifestation of his displeasure against sin. And it culminates in this coming day of wrath, which we call the Great Tribulation. So it's a, it's a temporal uh, thing. It's something here and now, not something that will be coming yet future. And so man's willful choice to exchange the glory of God, of the incorruptible God, for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures, man's sinful choice to exchange the truth of God for a lie and to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, what does it bring? It brings God's wrath, God's displeasure at sin. Now, how is God's wrath displayed? 
Well, we keep reading in that first chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 1, and again, we're getting that, this, we're stepping back here, getting this big overall picture of Romans again. We step back and we read things like, for instance, starting in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to the degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. You see, God's wrath, his, his anger, his displeasure with sin, the, the, the understandable, normal response of a holy God to ungodliness and unrighteousness is to display his anger in the way that he gives them over. Three times that phrase was used in that passage. God gives them over. He, with, he withdraws his protective hand, as it were. And he allows man to run headlong to suffer the consequences of their sinful choices. God's wrath is displayed in allowing man to grovel in the putridness of his own sinfulness and it's called death. To experience the, the full um, agony, the full stench of death. That's what sin naturally leads to. The wages of sin is death. Some 50 years ago, Francis Schaeffer, in his classic little book, Death in the City, referred to this passage of Romans chapter 1. He wrote this. Romans 1.18 tells us the result of men turning away from and rebelling against the truth they know. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Then he said, man is justly under the wrath of God who really exists and who deals with men on the basis of his character. And if the justice of that wrath is obvious concerning any generation, it is our own. There is only one perspective we can have of the post-Christian world of our generation, an understanding that our culture and our country is under the wrath of God. Our country is under the wrath of God. Northern European culture is under the wrath of God. You and I live in a post-Christian world because man is turned from God they are hung, there are hungers on every side. There is death in the polis. There is death in the city. Os Guinness, a protege of Francis Schaeffer, wrote more recently in his book, Renaissance, The Power of the Gospel, 
however dark the times, he said this, Soon as the legalization and then normalization of polyamory, polygamy, pedophilia, and incense follow the same logic as that of abortion and homosexuality, the socially destructive consequences of these trends will, will reverberate throughout society until the social chaos is beyond recovery. We can only pray there will be a return to God and sanity before the terrible sentence is pronounced. God has given them over to the consequences of their own settled choices. Francis Schaeffer wrote 50 years ago that God has already given us over. The terrible consequences, the terrible sentence has already been pronounced, says Schaefer in the 1960s. We are living in what Charles Colson wrote 20 plus years ago, a, the new dark ages. There is death in the city. And why is this so? Why is this so? Because as mankind makes its choices to live independently, autonomously from God, God, as it were, pulls back his restraining presence, his protective hand, and allows mankind to experience full-blown the consequences of his choices. Sin begets sin, the malignancy of sin. God's wrath is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, and it is presently being revealed. It's happening now. And so, what does sinful mankind need? If the wrath of God is being poured out against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, what does mankind need? They need righteousness. What is God willing to offer sinful mankind? The gift of his righteousness. This is what we've been studying about in the book of Romans, the gift of God's righteousness. And if we went over to chapter 3 of Romans and, and just begin reading in, in verse 21, and now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed being manifest or witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which comes by faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. But we are justified, and remember that's the word, we are declared righteous. The gift of God's righteousness has been manifested. And it's given to us as a gift Verse 24, by his grace, by means of the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, atoning sacrifice, a, 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 a sacrifice that satisfied God's wrath against sin. And he did it in his own blood, and it's ours through faith. Uh, this is the the point that Paul has been sharing. Um, our sin separates us from God. Uh, our sinful choices, our unrighteousness has put a great chasm between us. And the Bible tells us that no amount of good works, nothing that we do can ever bridge that chasm. 
Oh, we can try as hard as we may through our good deeds, through our attempts to um, obey the Ten Commandments and, and, and attend church and, and, and all the, the moral um, attempts that we may uh, try to offer God to get his attention. It all falls short. But the good news, and the good news that the book of Romans has been talking about, is that Jesus Christ came, that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but has everlasting life. Jesus became our Redeemer. He paid the ransom price. He bridged the gulf between God and us as sinful people. He sacrificed his life. He shed his blood. He bridged the gap. And when I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior, that gift of righteousness is brought over to my account. And God acknowledges it. He sees the gift of his righteousness on my account, and he declares me acquitted. He declares me righteous. That's justification. At the moment of faith, I have a new standing before a holy God. No longer does a righteous judge view my unrighteousness and see me as a condemned sinner. He sees the righteousness of his son. He acquits me of all crimes. And so Paul, in the, in, in the introduction of his book, in that theme verse said, so I'm not ashamed of this good news message. How can anyone be ashamed of it? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. It unleashes God's power for rescuing, that's the theme of this whole book of Romans, to be rescued. Rescued from what? Saved from what? Delivered from what? Well, from our sin, from our unrighteous standing before God. We are rescued from God's present manifestation, his ongoing present anger and displeasure with sin. We are saved Delivered, we are rescued from that. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so this is the good news that we've been talking about in the book of Romans. The problem that we have of unrighteousness, the solution that's found in God's gift of righteousness, and then his judicial declaration of acquittal to any sinner who simply believes in Jesus Christ. And by the way, have you put your trust and faith in Christ and Christ alone? Or are you still on that ledge trying to jump over to God by your good works, by your uh, church attendance, by your attempt to be an honest business person, by your attempts to do good things that you pray that God will somehow look at the end of your life and weigh against the bad things you've done. And maybe, just maybe, you'll be good enough to get to heaven. I want to tell you and ask you this morning or this afternoon, this evening, stop that kind of thinking. It's, it's not biblical. It's not in the Bible. Have you put your faith in Christ and Christ alone? He paid for your sins. He offers you the, he paid the ransom price. He offers you the freedom from sin and full pardon from a holy God by simply believing in him. He died for you. He rose again. 
He is the bridge between you and God. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Well, now, let's keep going here, though, in the book of Romans, because there's a sticky issue here. You see, after we trust Christ as our personal Savior and we've received that free gift of his righteousness, the fact of the matter is, you and I, we still sin. We still struggle with sin. Um, Trusting Jesus Christ as my Savior didn't mean that I stopped sinning. I still have a propensity to sin. In fact, we've often said here at Fellowship Bible Church, if you want to know what a Christian's capable of doing, read everything in the New Testament that we're told not to do. It gives us a pretty good idea what we're capable of doing. That's why many times, like for instance in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul would tell the Ephesian church, no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, in the sinfulness of, of their heart. Stop walking that way. Why would Paul say that if, if the Ephesian believers weren't capable of doing that? Of course we are capable of doing that. Again, you want to know what a, a, a Christian is capable of doing? Read everything that we're told not to do. And that raises this important question. Does that mean that a believer could, could still experience God's displeasure over our sin? Is still experience his, his anger, his wrath against me as a believer? Does God ever remove his protective hand, as it were, and say, all right, Mark, that's what you'd want to choose? You want to go that way? Have at it. I'm going to give you over to the, to the lusts, to the hungers, to the desires of your, your sinful passions. Does God ever do that? Well, the question, or the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> in fact, in chapter 6, Paul says, warns us, the wages of sin is death. He's writing that to to believers. Later in chapter 8, he'll put it this way, for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Paul was concerned for, for believers. Um, you, you remember the, in, in, in the book of James, chapter 1, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth what? Death. And the very next verse in James 1.16 is, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, my, my fellow believers. Don't be deceived. Now please understand, God's wrath and anger uh, against an unbeliever is as a righteous judge as he views condemned sinners, he deals with condemned sinners. But once we are justified by faith, once the righteousness of Christ comes over to our account and God now views us differently, we have a new standing with God, he declares us right with him. It's as if he takes off his judicial robe, sets them aside, 
that issue has been settled for all of eternity for every believer in Jesus Christ. However, as a believer, God can still display his anger, his wrath, his displeasure towards sin, and he does it as a, as a heavenly father who's concerned about his children. This is what Hebrews was talking about. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 and 7, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with, as with sons, as with his children. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Make no mistake, God deals with sin. God never turns a blind eye to sin, ever. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1, 17, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work? Well, what should be our response? Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Um, now, this is, another whole, this is another whole sermon that would have to be more thoroughly developed. Um, in fact, there's a whole book about it, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. Look it up and, and, and check it out sometime. It says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And the, the, the verse just before that, he says, God will judge his people. That's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Peter said, it's time for judgment to begin in the household of God. Um, don't think for one moment that God ever turns a blind eye to sin. His displeasure of sin is part of his character. His anger towards ungodliness and unrighteousness, it's part of who he is. He's a holy God. Now at the moment of faith, yes, we gain a new standing before this holy God. No longer does the righteous judge view our unrighteousness and sees us as condemned sinners. At the moment of faith, we're given the righteousness of Christ, and he sees us through the righteousness of his Son. He acquits us of all crimes. That's in his judicial court of law. And yet, we still sin. We still sin. And so there's something else that we need. Something else, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we desperately need as children of God who still sin. We need to be Rescued from the wrath of God. We need to be delivered from God's righteous character of anger against sin. And guess what? Paul is going to write about that in Romans 6, 7, and 8, starting in chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8. In fact, I think Paul has been laying a foundation uh, in these first four chapters of Romans, this truth of justification, this truth that we have been declared right and given the righteousness of God, but that's only the foundation. 
You see, the question is, how does that righteousness of God that has acquitted us of all crimes before the judicial court of God in his holiness, how does that righteousness of God practically live out in our day-to-day experience? Because the wrath of God will always be revealed, manifested against unrighteousness that's lived out. Now, having said all that, that, all that was introduction to take you to the chapter we are in, chapter 5 of Romans, and verses 8 through 10, 8 through 11, actually. So let's look at that. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than. That was, the, the, the verse 8 was um, chapters 1 through 4, but much more than. In other words, it's like Paul is saying, hey, it doesn't stop here. Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Look at that again. You see that? We shall be saved from the wrath of God. Verse 9, much more than verse 10, we shall be saved by his life. That, that brings us back, it brings us back to this concept of salvation, rescuing. We haven't seen that word since Chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God unto salvation. Here it is again. And look at these two verses again, verse 9 and 10. Verse 9, having now been justified by his blood, that, that coordinates with verse 10, we were reconciled through the death of his son. The last part of verse 9, so we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That coordinates with verse 10, we shall be saved by his life. Do you see the death of Christ there? Do you see the life of Christ there? The death of Christ, the life of Christ, what is that? That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. He died for me and he rose again for me. The good news is God sent his son who died and paid the penalty in his own blood, but he rose again to newness of life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even as believers, we can experience being rescued from God's wrath and anger and displeasure of sin. How? Through his life. Do you see that in verse 10? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Here's the point. When we trust Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we receive the gift of the righteousness of God that declared us acquitted of all crimes. We receive that gift of righteousness. But that's a reality that's within us, the righteousness of Christ. The question is, how is that going to be lived out on a daily basis? Can it be? Am I just acquitted of all crimes and then left to fend for myself? 
and, and sin and sin and sin more and then experience the, God's anger against sin? His displeasure with sin? Is that what the Christian life is all about? Struggling and struggling and struggling? No, it's not. And what Paul is going to do in these next chapters is going to teach us and show us how the very righteousness of Christ that was given to us as a gift can be lived out on a daily basis. His righteousness can become a reality in our life. It's what Paul said in Galatians chapter 2.20, um, that uh, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I'm going to live by faith in him. And as we continue in the weeks to come in Romans, the last part of Romans 5 and chapter 6, 7, and 8, this is where we're going. You see, God has saved us. He's rescued us from the penalty of sin and his eternal wrath, as it were. But God graciously is offering to, to rescue us, to save us from the power of sin being that, that can shape our life and bring us to that experience of death, even as a believer. It's all because he loved us. This impacts, folks, this impacts our daily living. It impacts our relationships at home. It impacts our, 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 our relationships at work. It's how we live our life. It's the life of Christ. So we have the experience of eternal life to avoid the experience of, of the pall of death, the stench of death in a life. And all this is possible through Jesus Christ, which is mentioned uh, four times in, in these verses. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And so here's the key point. God will go to great lengths in judgment and in restorative grace to turn the affections of his people back to him. See, there's a God in heaven who loves us. He created us for fellowship with him to experience the abundance of life with him. He, he loves us, and he saved us. He sent his son to bridge that gap so that we can experience the life of God, the abundance of life that we were created to experience. But we can't do that on our own. Just like we can't bridge that gulf, we needed a savior, we needed a rescuer, even as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to continue to be rescued from our sin and God's displeasure at our sin, who would even allow his children to experience the deadly consequences of sin if we kept living in that sin. So he has provided for us his righteousness through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's all through the work of Jesus Christ. And as we'll see, his life. And we come to Romans 6, 7, and 8. Francis Thompson was born in England in 1859. He was born into a family that had um, 
um, that loved Jesus. Uh, they were devout believers. Uh, but something happened with Francis. He tried to go to seminary, but he failed. Then he went on to, to medical school, and, and he failed at that. And finally, literally, he, he ended up on the streets. He ended up in a life of, of drug addiction and debauchery and despair. It was his choice. And as a vagrant in the streets of London, he just wandered and begged. It was his existence until, providentially, he met a man named Wilfred Maynell. And Wilfred Maynell took Francis Thompson under his wing. He cared for him. He loved him. He nursed him. He worked with him. He, he led him back to a relationship with God. Eventually, and it changed his life, um, he totally changed his course of life, Francis Thompson, but eventually at age 47, that old past life caught up with him, that life of debauchery. He ended up dying of tuberculosis. But not before he became a prolific writer and a great poet of, uh, of, of England. Francis Thompson is best known for uh, that famous poem, The Hound of Heaven. He tells of the relentless, uh, passionate pursuit of the love of God. Let me read uh, to you a portion of that poem. He said, I fled him. Down the nights and down the days, I fled him across the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind, and in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And, and under running laughter, up visted hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasm fears. I ran from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed and majestic instancy, those feet beat, the voice beat, more instant than the feet. And said, all things betray thee who betrayest me. Francis Thompson is running about the wrath of God. You're pursuing this, Francis? All right, go for it. It's a dead-end street. All things will betray you because you betray me. God's holy response to sin. But towards the end of the poem... We find these words that are now spoken by God, expressing his heart of love. Alack, thou knowest not how little worthy of any love thou art. Whom wilt thou find to love ignoble thee? Save me and only me. All which I took from thee I did but take, not for thy harms, but just that thou mightst seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake fancies is lost, I have stored for thee at home. So rise, clasp my hand, and come. That's the hound of heaven. God in his majestic, um, perfectly paced pursuit of love. Oh, he'll allow us the degradation of our sin. 
He'll allow us to suffer the consequences, the deadly consequences of our choices, if that's what we want. But he will always pursue. And when we're sick and tired of the death and the stench that we have found ourselves in, the wrath of God, he will say, rise, clasp my hand, come home. That's the love of God. The hound of heaven who allows a sinner to experience death and then rescues him in love. You see, there remains one more thing for us to do, and Paul writes about it in verse 11 of chapter 5. You see, he says not only this, but we now exalt, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. We rejoice with a heart of thanksgiving. You know what we do? We celebrate the Eucharist. That's the word for thanksgiving. We celebrate what God has done for us. The hound of heaven. Yes, he'll let us go in our sin. And we will experience that anger of God. The loving anger of a God who pursues us and reaches out and says, clasp my hand. It's time to come home. Let's continue to worship God, shall we? Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to worship you, to know that it's Jesus and Jesus alone who offers us living waters, life eternal, unending joy and peace, total fulfillment in your presence as your children. And so we exalt, we rejoice, we celebrate the Eucharist in Jesus' name. Amen.